You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. We're your hosts, Luke Wang and James Creech. And today we're joined by online video sensation, Taryn Southern. Taryn, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I guess just to kind of kick it off, you've been in the online video business for a while now. What first prompted you to launch a YouTube channel and start creating videos? And how did you get your start in this business? I actually just released a video about this this morning at 6 a.m., which is pretty funny. So my first YouTube video that I ever made was in 2007 called Hot for Hillary. And it was a spoof of the Obama girl video back when Obama and Hillary were in the primaries. And that video went quote unquote viral for the time. Getting a million hits was a big deal. That launched my foray into digital. And of course, now I'm getting emails from friends saying, you gotta gotta do a part two, right? You gotta do a part two. So I made a video where I reacted to the original video nine years after its release. It's pretty ridiculous, but yeah. What prompted the initial video? I saw the Obama girl video. I thought it was so funny. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I was like, someone's going to do a lesbian love song for Hillary Clinton. It should be me. I don't know. I I was like already writing music and doing funny sketches with my friends. And I've been wanting to make a YouTube video. So it just felt like the right thing to jump into. The perfect intersection of comedy and music and topicality. But I actually didn't make another YouTube video for three years after that. I started working for other companies and making videos for other companies because there was no money in YouTube at that time. Tell us about that experience. What were some of the companies you worked with? I worked first with Heavy.com for a year uh, break.com. I worked with for a year. I worked with cosmopolitan.com, which is Cosmo magazine. They had their own like native video player on their site. We did a daily show for them for two years. Oh my goodness. Funnier, funnier die. I did some stuff with there's crackle. There was 60 frames, which was a company that was like incubating and funding content and disseminating it across daily motion. I mean, I was working for everyone except for YouTube And then occasionally doing collab videos with other YouTubers at that time who had channels, but I wasn't actually pursuing the channel model myself. I just didn't understand why people would be on YouTube if there was no money there. That makes sense. And what, I guess, shame on me, shame on me, that made you decide, oh, actually, I need to start, you know, start creating my own channel or my own videos for my own channel. So like I said, 2007 was my first video release. By 2010, it was really clear that there was an ecosystem. I think 2009 is when they introduced the AdSense program which I didn't sign up for for a year. 2010, I started seeing my friends on YouTube moving to LA and I was being invited to their apartments and I was like, you guys only do YouTube and you you pay your rent in this apartment? And they're like, yeah. Like, I remember the first guy who invited me over for a gathering was Philip DeFranco. And then a year later, <laughs> I'll just say this, I hope he doesn't mind, but like he upgraded to a townhome. <laughs> and this is when in my head I was like, okay, people are actually making this real money. Real. 
Yeah, this is real. And so that was 2011. And then... How did you meet Phil? You know what? I don't even remember how I met Phil. I, I couldn't even tell. Probably at, there was like a, a YouTube meetup in 2009 at the convention center down in Century City. And a bunch of those guys, I, Justine, they were all there. And somehow that's how I met everybody. But then I'd say by early 2012, I thought I'd already missed the boat. I was like, I missed the boat. All these guys now have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. They're all doing advertising deals. I, how am I going to start now in this ecosystem? I started planning what I would do if I started a channel. And then it took me a full year to actually pull the trigger and do it. And I launched my, my channel the same month that all the Google sponsored Google paid for channels launched. I don't know if you remember that initiative that they yeah, did. Absolutely. Yeah. So Are you part of that program. No. I wish I was so bummed. I'm like, they all get a couple million dollars to launch their channel. And I'm launching mine with my cat Tiggy. Obviously been in front of the camera, behind the camera, side of the camera. I'm sure if there's a side of the camera, like what part do you enjoy the most in terms of being a creator? Like, is it the hosting? Is it the writing? Is it the producing aspect? Like which parts of it do you enjoy? And, you know, kind of on a daily basis. I really enjoy the entire process. I think maybe maybe it's more in line with directing, you know? I mean, I really enjoy the conceptualizing of a video concept, but I don't necessarily enjoy the nitty-gritty of writing. I enjoy, like, overseeing an edit, but I don't really like the nitty-gritty of editing. And I've had to do all of those things in terms of that, the specificity, but I just really like the creation process from start to finish. As a post or personality I enjoy being on camera, but I'm finding that more and more anything that involves acting, I'd rather just not do it. <laughs> what is it that? I don't entirely know. I think just like anything, things get old and I've made over a thousand videos. So I think just wow. getting in front of the camera starts to feel a little bit, I actually don't really like vlogging that much either. So I really enjoy interviewing and having that back and forth, but me having to just pull stuff out of my head to the camera, it's starting to feel a little stiff and, and yeah. difficult. So I've been it's, trying it's to mix it up. It's tough to do that on a regular basis because there's only what, so many topics to, to talk about Yeah, keep interesting. And I'm always sitting there analyzing everything I'm saying. How is this coming across? You know, am I going to get incinerated for what I'm about to say? Anything, anything, no matter how light of the touch that you have, right. it can be it can be total cause to, to just get annihilated by viewers. So. Right. That's, I think I become more and more aware of that the older I get. Yeah. So that's been a challenge too. Well, I think that's kind of the beauty and the curse of the internet is that there's an audience with a point of view on everything. And the great part is that you can find people that share that same point of view, but then there's always that sliver of trolls or maybe people that actively believe against, you know, don't believe what you believe in and, and will, you know, write, write on comments or, you know, share their frustration or dislike on, on those videos. And I know that can be, especially for someone who's in the spotlight, it can be tough to see, especially when you're trying to cater to your audience on a, on a regular basis as well. 100%. But as I get older, I feel more of a responsibility to share how I really feel about things. And when I'm passionate about something, voice that. But I didn't create a platform that lends itself to that. When people are used to subscribing for fart videos, they don't really want to hear your political views. So how has your content or perhaps the style of the content changed over time? It's been very wacky and all over the place. I mean, last year I released a 1980s cover album and there were music videos for every single one of those songs. And my audience was like, what's going on? There was comedy <laughs> videos for six months prior to that. And then I did, then I kind of got into serious mode for a little bit because I just didn't feel like doing the comedy stuff and was releasing more serious stuff. And then I did a talk show that was 20 minutes long for six months where I had a variety of really interesting people on the show. And I, that was fun and energetic and weird, but it was also... 20 minutes long, 15 to 20 minutes. And so a lot of my audience didn't want to stick around and watch a video for that long. And then coming out of that, that was only two months ago. So, so what's next? 
Well, I'm excited about what's next. It's going to be an interesting transition. So I've still been releasing content almost weekly on the channel since the end of the talk show while figuring out this new space. I'm launching a community slash uh, network called Tribe of Good, which focuses on technology and innovation and how we can use it to make the world a better place. With that, I'm doing a podcast called the Tribe of Good Podcast, where I'm sitting down with innovators and thought leaders and created a new format for my channel called But Seriously Though, where I just dive into serious topics from a not so serious perspective. So it's fun. I mean, we'll just see how people react to it. I have no idea. I, I will probably lose a lot of subscribers, but I'm excited to move in a different a different area and actually like do something I'm really passionate about versus just continuing to do the same thing over and over and hope that, <laughs> you know, and hope that something, I feel that there's runway right now with my channel. Like mm-hmm. if I were just were to keep doing what I've been doing, it would, I think I've got a year or two runway. So I've got to mix things up, but also for my own personal sanity, I've got to change things up and do stuff I'm actually really passionate about, sure. which is no longer like Tinder dating mm-hmm. videos. <laughs> Yeah, now it's bubble dating videos. <laughs> Actually, yes, that's true. Um, I still have good material, but yeah. I'll save it for. I'm saving it for Snapchat. Oh, I'm okay. finding that Snapchat is my new comedy spot. Like, mm-hmm. I love, I love using Snapchat for the comedy. In fact, that's why I want to move in a more serious direction with the YouTube stuff because, like, I, Snapchat, I just don't think about it. It's just mm-hmm. ridiculous, and I'm doing it all day long. So then, there's an, and there's no pressure. And then yeah. YouTube, I can I can dive into longer format stuff. What other video platforms <laughs> are important to you or your audience? I mean, I'm using Facebook and Instagram, but I wouldn't say it's important to me. It's more like I have to use it to some degree. I mean, I don't really, I would prefer to not have any social media (laughs) if it were up to me. I think it's just another thing to think about. And I'd say most of the time it just makes me feel less present to have to engage on these platforms. And I'd rather be more present in life. But for now, Snapchat's a fun one. I'm enjoying it just because it's so ridiculous. And I'm finding like now what I'm doing on Snapchat is I kind of take a theme each day. And I apply that for the entire day. So what it does as a storyteller is it gives me a box and it forces me to play in that box. And it's kind of fun because it also gives me a lens from which to look at my day. So like Monday was, uh, what did I do Monday? I think Monday was attack, uh, attacking Monday or attack your Monday. And so it was like all the ways that I'm attacking my Monday positively, but most of the things are actually really negative, <laughs> but it was just really fun to put that, that spin like throughout the entire day, whenever something bad would happen, I would Snapchat it and I'd be like attacking my Monday, you know? And then it's like so dumb, but I felt happier as a result of it yeah. too. So do you, I mean, obviously with all these different platforms that you have managed, do you like have a team that you work with or how, how do you sort of stay up to date on all these platforms and continue to produce content for each of them? How do you sort of manage all that kind of stuff? I do have a small team I work with, a girl, Liz. She's been my right-hand woman for three years and she produces all of my branded content. She kind of just handles like biz dev for the channel, so to speak, and then also produces all the all the outside series we're doing with Marriott. Uh, we actually have a series with Snapchat that launches next month that I'm really excited about. We are in post on that. So she's she handles all that stuff. And then I have a part-time editor slash DP, now I'm bringing on a guy for the podcast. So I just kind of usually just general con- independent contractors for different projects. That's typically how I work. But there's no way I could do it all myself. I actually don't know how YouTubers do it all themselves. I mean, I edited the video that I posted this morning. But for the most part, I would say only one out of every 10 videos I post are edited by me. It's like I always do a final pass, but there's just not enough time. So you mentioned kind of wanting to move in a different direction with your content and and maybe kind of having it be more serious. 
the other YouTube personalities that you that you've known and kept in touch with, I Justine, Phil DeFranco, do you think they've gone through a similar transition? Is that reflective of, of a journey a lot of people experience in the YouTube space? I I don't know. I mean, I'm still I'm still amazed that Phil and Justine are, can put out the amount of content that they do because they've been doing this a lot longer than me and with far more frequency. I mean, like yes, I've always been producing content, but it was it was always project based and it was always like because I was working for different players in the space, whatever I was doing was contextualized by their brand. Whereas I, Justine, and Philip have had to maintain a brand for that long and try to figure out how to evolve while also not alienating alienating their audience. And I don't I don't know how they do it. I think there's severe burnout amongst content creators and YouTubers, especially the last year, because they're they're all incentivized to be making as much as possible. It's all about pr- producing. It's just producing, producing, producing. That's how you get the views and the algorithm favors you. How many YouTubers moved from one video a week? I remember I remember three years ago when they were all like, oh my God, how are we going to do one video a week consistently? Because that's now the key. And then it went up to two videos a week. And then, then everyone was saying, we got to do three a week. And this year, I can't believe how many YouTubers I've seen go to five days five day a week videos. And these are YouTubers that have been doing this for seven, eight years. I don't know how they do it. I would just, (laughs) I did one month of five day a week videos and it was a nightmare. And ultimately I ended up just feeling bad about myself because I'm, I'm putting content out that I'm not proud of. And even once a week I'm putting content out that I'm not proud of. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. It's really tough. So I don't know. I don't know what their personal journeys have been. I'm sure that I I mean, I know from all the content creators that I am close with and talk to regularly that it's a constant battle. I mean, Phil is different because he's got this, this just like behemoth brand now. So I don't think he has to, he's, he's doing so many different things that it's probably, I feel like he's pretty challenged and doesn't, doesn't feel like he's getting stuck in anything. You mentioned a couple of times, the brands that you work with, you know, how you've worked with brands. Tell us a little bit more about that process and what you look for in finding a good brand partnership. It's totally different every time. I mean, obviously like I need brands. We need brands as content creators because that's how we make a living. If I were to make a living off of my Google AdSense, I would be living in the alley outside of your building. <laughs> that's um, very nice alley. And I'm not even joking. Like, like I'd be happy to like share. I mean, my, my, it's, it's, we're looking at a, a several hundred dollars a month on AdSense. And I've been at this for a while and I have almost, you know, half a million subscribers, which doesn't mean much in terms of subscriber count. But if you're just looking at collective views over time, you would think that it would be more than that. And it's just not, which is sad. So there's a dependency on brands, which means that not all brand partnerships are going to be perfect. But I, I've been pretty fortunate. The last few years, I've been pretty aggressive with how I approach brand relationships. So I think I'm, I like being an advocate on behalf of the content creator in terms of like, I don't like seeing people take bad deals because they need the money because ultimately that affects everyone in the space and it sets really poor precedence. So I do a lot of speaking on that at conferences and, and at like brand workshops about how like there needs to be more standards in the industry for how brands hire content creators, what types of deals are done. And then when I work with brands, I'm usually just like, this is my rate. And with this, you're going to have a, someone that you can have a very intimate dialogue with. You don't have to go through my MC and or manager. Let's like really talk about how we can optimize this relationship. And I will always provide every single brand after I work with them with screenshots on my back end, uh, an engagement report, things we could have done better, things. I mean, I also consult. So this is like part of what I do with the consulting. But I think that, that that's appreciated on the brand side. So it's but every relationship's different. Sometimes the brands come to me directly. Sometimes they go through my agency. Sometimes they go through my MCN. Sometimes I approach them. 
um, or I just meet them somewhere and it turns into a longer relationship with Marriott, who I've been working with for two years. That was David Beebe over there, who I used to work with when he was at Fishbowl. So a lot of it's just like being in the business for so long that now you just kind of know people as they as they move to different areas. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, Sorry. it's a great answer. Tell us a little bit more about your MCN partner and the agency you work with. I've been at CAA for the past three years. I was at ICM prior to that. Great, amazing experiences with both of them. I think at this point, I mean, CAA is... And same with ICM. I mean, they... they the agency has always been my central point of contact for everything, with the MCN sort of being an adjunct adjunct player. But also, I come from the traditional media space, so I'm just also really used to having the agent handle everything. I used to have managers. I decided two years ago, no more managers. I'd rather keep a lean team and just have less people to have to go through contracts and stuff. It just moves things along quicker. But yeah, I've been, I have uh, someone for digital, someone for hosting slash personality, someone for branding, and then someone for acting, but I don't really deal deal with them anymore because I basically quit when I went over to CAA. So that's pretty much my team over there. And then, and then I'm with Maker as an MCN. They pretty much contact me when it's anything YouTube centric. And I always loop in CAA on those those deals because um, more and more it's just there's the, the the different platforms are becoming there's like such a bleeding together of mm-hmm. of stuff you can't really sign like a branded deal for your YouTube channel and have it not impact stuff that you're doing in television or with other platforms so you kind of have to have everyone there's I mean it's messy right now let's be honest mm-hmm. the MCN manager agency space is messy and that's a lot of percentages being taken out and so I always tell content creators. YouTubers, whoever, when they're meeting with these people, don't just be so willing to give up that 40% or whatever it is by the time you're done signing all these deals with people. Be smart about who you're working with and your representation and keep it as lean as you can. Make sure they have value, like actual value. A hundred percent. And what I'm finding with the MCN space is, is just that, I mean, I've had an amazing experience with Maker because they financed my talk show. So like they financed something that was really important to me and they were incredible partners on that. But if I'm just looking around at the MCN space... As a whole, you don't really need to be signed with an MCN to get brand deals. They, you know, I think the content creator brand space is fairly, it's like ubiquitous. It's just, you can kind of be anywhere. And and as long as you have an audience, people are going to hand you deals. So I I don't know. I recommend uh, to different creators to really be, really be careful before signing any sort of agreement, you know, with who they're going to work with. What is the solution (laughs) to the complexity and all the middlemen in the system today? Do you think... MCNs will win out? Will a lot of it kind of move towards traditional talent agencies? Will we ever see kind of a clear-cut role definition between MCNs, agencies, and others? It's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think now we're seeing the MCNs moving in more of a studio direction, right? They're full screens creating content for their platform. Awesomeness is killing it in terms of developing content for both their own platform and for Verizon Go90. And so they're bringing in revenue sources from a lot of other streams, um, that the agencies are not capable of doing. I kind of feel like the MCNs will move more into that studio space and the agencies, because they've been putting way more focus on signing content creators, will work more as the traditional MCN in terms of actually acquiring brand deals and, and negotiating those brand deals. I don't think the MCNs, that that actually makes a lot of sense on a scalable level for them to be taking in these like little brand deals and, and negotiating them. If they want to focus on being big production studios, they should just do that. Do you think they help creators grow their audience and maybe do collaborations with others in the network? Not, I don't think most MCNs do a good job of that. So, I mean, look, I think it's, I think it's manager specific, depending on the manager that you're with, they might be highly focused on that. I have a friend who's with collab and she says they're, that's, 
they are very good at setting up, you know, collaborations and, and optimizing those relationships, which is fantastic. But I would say from my experience or from the experience of a lot of my friends, that hasn't been a central focus because that's not the moneymaker for them. If they have to go back to their boss and say, well, we set up, you know, X, Y, Z number of collaborations for this YouTuber and we grew their channel times three, but like that doesn't necessarily equal a lot of money. The AdSense isn't going to make sense for that MCN. So unless they're, they're better off spending their time selling premium advertising, getting brand deals. So it sounds like brand deals are the primary revenue driver today. AdSense is part of the equation, but maybe not a significant part. What do you think about subscription revenues from YouTube Red or from other platforms? We'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty... You sound skeptical. I'm very skeptical <laughs> on how the subscription model will work out. I just, I mean, as a consumer, how many can you have? I'm already a subscriber of Netflix and Spotify. Do I want to pay an extra, what is it, $7.99 for YouTube Red? Yeah. I'm a YouTuber. I haven't bought $9.99. I don't even know how much it costs. No, I don't. I don't want it. Unless if they can prove to me that they're going to be better than Spotify and better than Netflix, there's no reason for me to add another subscription to the mix. And then you got full screen doing this too. And Maker, they were. They were going to do it. They decided not to, which I think was probably a smart move. And then creators doing their like own little subscription models, $1.99 or $0.99 cents or whatever for an app, which actually I don't think that's a bad idea if you've got a hardcore fan base and a very niche audience. But... I don't know. I would have no business getting into the subscription model for my own stuff because I don't make niche content. Although, maybe that will change with Tribe Good. <laughs> Here we go. The podcast is a premium filter. <laughs> what about other revenue streams? Do you think about e-commerce and affiliate marketing or merchandise or any of that? I've always been shocked that other YouTube creators are not more focused on affiliate marketing and like e yeah, just e-marketing in general because I know people that have built just massive businesses on that alone. And when you have that large of an audience... Why take the time to just always be merchandising when you can be curating and just sending people to existing products that have like real, I mean, especially if, like, let's say you're in the tech content space and you can constantly be sending people to cameras and computer equipment and all these high dollar purchases. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to ship it. All you're doing is just providing the traffic. And I, I've always been shocked that more creators haven't jumped on that bandwagon. I mean, some of them do, but it not, not to, they're all more focused on making t-shirts. And I just don't see how that's uh, that competitive. It's not a high margin business. No. It's easy. It's, it's like turnkey for them. So I think a lot of them choose to do it because it's like, oh, right. my friend's doing it. But the problem is your bandwidth to promote to your audience and send them somewhere is only so far. Agreed. So if you're always sending people to your t-shirt company where you're making whatever margin yep. versus like this 3% of every Amazon sale that you send your audience to. I mean, Ray William Johnson got it. I started seeing four years ago, he was only sending people to Amazon. And I, and I was like, no one's catching this. Brilliant. Because he doesn't have to do anything. And every single week, the products can change, whatever he's recommending. Tim Ferriss, this is how Tim Ferriss makes money on his newsletter, from sending people to existing products. I mean, he also has his own product lines too, but more, way more so on the affiliate. Yeah. You mentioned you also do some consulting. Yeah. What kind of consulting work do you do? It depends. I mean, mostly, mostly I bake it into the production deals I do with the brands I'm working with. So like with Marriott, you know, we, we sort of do like influencer centric consulting, helping them figure out how to embed influencers into the series, what kinds of deals will optimize the view count, how, how much paid media should we run versus just influencer media. I was consulting for a little bit for an, a tech company science, just an incubator in Santa Monica mm -hmm. and helping with some of their companies in incubation, mostly, mostly on the influencer side, just helping brands and companies understand how to optimize their relationship with influencers based on their metrics and what they need and their objectives. 
what types of influencers would be good, helping them identify key influencers, reaching out to them, negotiating deals for the companies. So that's primarily what it's been, but it's also digital strategy as well, helping them figure out formats for their products. So I'm working on two consulting deals right now, um, which I, they're not done, so... But Very it's cool. exciting. Yeah. Did you work with FameBit as part of your experience with science? It's funny. FameBit, I think. <laughs> FameBit, I didn't work with FameBit. FameBit was there after I consulted. But I was. I sat down with Mike Jones and said, you need to build this. So mm. I'm, I'm going to take full credit for FameBit. <laughs> uh, I was like, here's how you need to scale this out. Like what I was doing for them with the other companies. Sure. What do you think of influencer marketplaces like that? I think it's really smart. I don't actually know how they're doing. I'd be curious. Do you guys have any insights? On that? My take is that there there's little barrier to entry outside of just having that relationship because it's not like with MCNs where you have exclusive access to their AdSense and that's a value differentiator. Right. But like with these influence marketing companies, it's like anyone can set up shop and just like, hey, sign up, you know, influencer X, Y, and Z, sign up for this thing. We'll send you deals. And so I think it becomes harder and harder. Like the ones that I think got set up first will have a leg up, but the ones that are coming after and there's like dozens of them now, like if, if not hundreds it's just, I think, harder to maintain because each of those deals, unless you're doing it in a way where you're sending affiliate deals, like if they're so time and resource intensive where it's like, I've got to, I've got to handhold these brands and the talent through this deal together. Otherwise, my, yeah. you know, 17 or 30% margin deal is going to fall through. It just, I think for me, it's very tough coming, you know, seeing it from the MCN side where we did brand deals as a way to generate revenue. Doing it at scale is very hard unless you have the staff to support it. Right. So... I don't know how these guys are, how these companies are structured, but well, and I've done, no, that's really, those are, that's all, those are all really good points. I've done a couple of deals with famed famebit and it's pretty, pretty simple and streamlined, um, smaller social media deals. So not like video content, but, but it seemed to me like in the deals that I did, there was very little middleman interaction, which I thought as a company, brilliant, Mm -hmm. great. Like you can totally scale this out. It's just pretty much between the the brand and the content creator. And you're just facilitating the intro Mm -hmm. and helping the brand figure out the metrics that they should be using to look at who they should hire. But I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what intro, it is. How do they go back? How do they ensure that, you know, they maintain that relationship? Like they, they get cut out the second time around or whatever. hundred percent. Yeah. So it's tough. Um, I think it's tough. That is then, tough. Then as you make influencer buys more programmatic, does it set off a race to the bottom, which is what happened in programmatic yeah. video buying? Yeah. Sorry, what was that? A race to the bottom in terms of like dropping the rates. So with more competition, yeah. influencer rates would decline. By the way, that is 100% true, which is the negative part about all of these things. I've seen mm-hmm. the rates decline for videos. I've had brands tell me through FameBit and through some of these automatic platforms, like, what is your rate? We cannot believe that is your rate. And we would never pay that. And look at what we're getting from content creators that are so much bigger than you. And I'm like, you know what? Fair enough. I'm not 18 years old. I've been in this business for 10 years. And you're also paying for, like, the fact that I don't make all my videos in a bedroom. Like, you know, there are a lot of variations on what you're right. – the quality of the content – I understand. The engagement that you get, exactly. There's a lot of variables. But it is, I mean, a lot of the, but here's the thing. A lot of these 18-year-olds are getting crazy engagement, more engagement than I'm getting. But in terms of uh, how the brand is presented and integrated and that, how that relationship is, you just don't know as a brand what you're getting yourself into. So I don't know. That's kind of a bummer. It's, that is a big bummer if if the rates are, are getting dropped for everyone when, when right now give, I mean, the view counts are so high in comparison to television in terms of like, you know, we, we can monetize these advertising integration, advertising integration so much better in digital than TV. And yet the, the rates still don't, they're, they don't add up at all. I think what's going to be interesting is over the next few years, you know, there's a difference between a true influencer and someone that just has a large audience, but can't actually 
you know, convince their audience to do something. And I don't know if any company has a particular way to measure that, but I think if someone could, that'd be a really key asset to the advertising industries because yeah. right now, like anyone with like, you know, if, if I'm like um, an Instagram model or whatever, and I've got like five million Let's be honest, followers, Luke, you are. I, I, I'm I not think you're yet. an Instagram I'm, model. I'm working towards that way. But you know, <laughs> she's like, she's taking pictures of whatever, you know, it's just like, it's mostly just glamour shots, but you can't get them to buy something that's, you know, that's going to move the needle for this brand. What value is that five million if that's just there because they just want to see hot pictures of this girl? Right. And then maybe someone with with less followers, less subscribers, whatever it is, but can motive can move fifty percent of that audience to buy this new you know computer or whatever it is. Like that, I think is going to be the turning point of what separates an influencer from someone that's just got like a large follower count. One hundred percent. And that's, I mean, I think whether that's brands using codes you know, that they supply the influencer with, which I actually hate because I think that's just an extra step for the audience versus just links that they can track. I mean, that's all that's already happening, I think, but yeah. it's just not as sophisticated as it could be. But I'm also, that's there's also something that really depresses me about that because not every content creator or influencer is designed to sell product, yeah. but they could absolutely impact positive awareness around the brand in a huge way. So... How many brands put up billboards everywhere? They're not trying to sell product, but they're paying a lot of money to be in print ads, to be in commercials. They should still be doing that to to have the association with certain personalities, regardless of, you know, most YouTube comedy channels are going to have a real tough time selling product because people aren't going there to buy. It's not a fashion channel. It's not a beauty channel, but they should still be compensated for working with McDonald's in the way that a fast food specific (laughs) uh, YouTube channel would. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just... I don't know how you quantify that. Yeah. So you mentioned television and a lot of other aspects of traditional media. What do you think about the traditional space? Is that something you have aspirations to cross over into? Is it something that you think traditional media companies are doing a good job trying to figure out digital today? Well, I started in traditional. So my first show was a, I traveled around the world and met my MySpace friends and that was on DirecTV. And then I was a host for MTV and VH1 and G4 and and TV Guide Channel and Discovery Channel. I did show on there for two years. So like I've worked in TV and then as an actress, plenty, but I, I, the reason I got out of it was because I was way more excited about where the digital space was going as far as going back into traditional I mean I still dabble a little bit when it makes sense but it's not something I'm actively seeking Um, I was just way more focused on building out this audience online so that I could have more control if I ever do go back into traditional because I didn't want to be someone who was just the puppet showing up I wanted to be more of of a writer producer talent that can have just a little bit more, a little bit more control over how things move. I mean, even as a writer, I, I, I sold a couple pilots in my early twenties, neither of which got picked up to series. And that was devastating because I lost that. I don't own that. It's gone. But I think if you can come back into the space with a lot of leverage, you know, then maybe some of those deals can shift and change and it becomes easier to, you know, to at least, at least not lose your babies, so to speak. But you no, know, I'm open to it. I think I'm, I'm actually moving. I'm so excited about the VR AR space that I have a feeling that within the next like two years, I probably will be fully enmeshed in that and not really looking at TV and film. Mm-hmm. Are you doing any interactive video projects today? I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a couple of 360 video projects and learning unity game engine. Uh, I just bought a supercomputer <laughs> as well as uh, the HTC Vive and the Samsung gear camera, which you can only buy from Korea, but you can have it shipped in. Cause it's, it's the best camera just for quick 
auto stitching and broadcasting in 360. So I'll be doing my podcast in 360 as well as a few other things. So yeah, I just love this stuff. I'm such a nerd. So it's just fun. (laughs) It's fun to learn about it. That's amazing. Cool stuff to look forward to. Yeah. Obviously we touched on a lot of things. Like if you had one person that would be representative of your career path, like who, who would that role model be? Uh, I love what Chris Hardwick has done. I think in terms of building out Nerdist and making that a destination for all things gamers and geeks, but also being a fun uh, personality in front of the camera. I mean, I think he kind of is a perfect representation of what I'd like to see, the direction I'd like to see myself moving in over the next couple of years. Hopefully Tribe of Good is a... It's like, the next it's, like, it's like the next Nerdist for technology, mm-hmm. VRAR frontier tech enthusiasts. That'd be very cool. Who yeah. like doing good for the world. Oh, okay. Too specific? The exclusive <laughs> announcement. <laughs> all things video. Actually, you did. You guys yeah. really do have the exclusive <laughs> announcement. I was supposed to announce Tribe of Good in a video this week, but then I chose to release a Hopper Hillary video <laughs> instead. Priorities. Milk and lat last bit of attention. Exactly. So do you have any advice for those who want to start a YouTube channel today or want to be a social video creator? Be aware that it's a really saturated marketplace right now. It's not the same space that it was five years ago. So I think it depends. Like if you just want to make videos, then great. Go make videos. Always be looking though for the next platform or thing that you think could really catch on because if you can get in early on a new platform, that's your best bet for building a real audience versus like getting into a marketplace that's already oversaturated. For people that are interested in, in VR, I think that's a really interesting space to, to as a content creator to start experimenting with and getting into because it is so nascent. Yeah, I mean, like things are just going to change dramatically in the next five years. I feel like now playing in the VR AR space, I feel like I'm in a, I'm waking up every single morning in a fictional sci-fi movie because it's just moving so fast every single day. There's new technology and there's new changes and shifts. And so content creators, even that are playing in the traditional or in the YouTube space, I think there's just going to be really big shifts in the next two, three years. So just like have fun, make stuff if you want to make stuff, but just be aware that I don't know. Things are just really, really, really different. Consumption is different. I don't really know what these, what are the 13, they're like Gen Zers. Is that the 13 to? Mm-hmm. What is that? Yep. Gen Z, the yeah. next generation. I need oh. to meet some of those people <laughs> and like sit down with them and interview them and see how they're consuming media because it's just, they're, it's just so different. And those are the people that in five years will be setting the rules just as we did five years ago. That makes it and feel we, so old. <laughs> no, but we, here's we are old now, Luke. Let's just, <laughs> no, let's just accept it. We're the old veterans of the yeah. space, but we really did set the rules mm-hmm. and the guidelines. And some of those things that we set, I think, set really awful precedents and some of them really good ones. But now these other little tots are going to be <laughs> <laughs> ruling the world of media. Ryan's and we have news. to either evolve and adapt or I don't know, or just get out or just not make money. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so you mentioned some of these big shifts. <laughs> this is like horrible advice. That's the most cynical. Yeah, just stay out, yeah. stay away. Go back to the movie business. Or find the alleyway where James is living in. <laughs> exactly. Go be an organic farmer or set up a pot shop. That's like a great industry. <laughs> That's growth like industry. a great growth industry right now. <laughs> Everyone's got options. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. So what's coming next? If you had to make some predictions about the online video space, what would you say? I think you'd fairly obvious that I would say I think I think VR, AR, and whatever that will look like in the next five years will be a booming industry as the headsets become more adopted. I think 
Vertical video will continue to expand just as its own, not necessarily Snapchat, but now that we're just so accustomed to seeing vertical video and not being a new storytelling device, I think we'll see more platforms that are dedicated to vertical video. Luke and I are working on a diagonal video startup. That's true. Trying to disrupt. Disruption. (laughs) Just to basically make everyone dizzy as hell. Yeah. It's called Vertigo. Check it out. Vertigo. That's amazing. Oh my God. I love it. I think quick interactive content will just continue to be something that grows and like Snapchat, the filters that they put on have, have made everyone a content creator. Insane. So now everyone's a, a Steven Spielberg of their own life, which is just, I almost feel like I remember thinking when the iPhone came out six years ago now about, I was like, Oh, every headshot photographer should just go throw themselves into a river. <laughs> like not, not in like, but it's just, they all lost their jobs within a year. Everyone became a professional photographer. You don't need one anymore. Especially with Instagram, too. Yeah. And of course, there's still, of course, there will always be room for art. Mm-hmm. But like just taking away the majority of those jobs like that. And I think the same thing with content creation in a sense. When Snapchat's giving people these tools to make things that previously would have taken someone like, I don't know, weeks in After Effects. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And you have an instantaneous tool for this. I just think a lot of content creators are going to have a hard time figuring out how to make a living. I think especially on the the higher production value, like the studios and networks where they're spending $100,000 a minute to produce a TV show. And then you've got you shooting on your Snapchat camera for free. But equally, like they deserve the same amount of attention to like whoever's watching it. Like you just can't compete on that level. So it's going to be really tough, I think, for like the Viacoms, the NBC Universals, those, those companies to compete for eyeballs in the same way as they did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So. Totally. And I think I think there was some study that young kids now, I think this was last year, 2015, I believe. Um, I, I can't remember the study, but it was the one that like CAA and all the agencies used to determine what like young kids no, are into. The study of, were they more recognizable than traditional Hollywood celebrities? That one, but then there was another one in conjunction with that same uh, study that basically showed that they would rather be a YouTube star than the president. It was like the first time ever that a kid would be more excited. And, and like YouTube star was at the top of the list. They'd rather be a wow. YouTube star than a traditional celebrity, than a president, than an entrepreneur, wow. seven to nine year olds. Yeah, that's wild. So sad. <laughs> being a YouTube star in some cases might pay better than being. That's true. Not not my not my. <laughs> no, some of the big ones for sure. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. I just don't know what's going to happen for the middle class sure. content creator. Mm-hmm. We don't really have that. The big brands want to work with the biggest YouTubers, right. and they don't understand that they can get a lot of bang from their buck by dividing it up amongst other creators in the middle tier that serve a specific audience and just doing a more widespread campaign. So all the dollars go to the top 1%, right? That's interesting. So is there this notion of social inequality, the rich get richer on YouTube because <laughs> because the algorithm favors them, but also because the brands... I think people are starting pushing. to talk about it more. I mean, it's something you don't really want to talk about because like all my friends are in that 1%. So I'm not, I'm not knocking on them. Good for them. I'm so glad that they're buying their mansions and they're, I'm just going to come over and use their, their house. Yeah, exactly. No. And they, and they deserve it. They're all so hard, you know, they're hardworking individuals. I've just noticed that the ecosystem isn't fair, um, both in terms of the brand dollars and the algorithm, because the more, once you've dominated that space for long enough, the SEO, it's just on your side. And like, you can't, get rid of these people's videos and the suggested videos. No one can cut through the noise. It's just too thick. Who's going to be the Bernie Sanders of YouTube? (laughs) The algorithms, they got problems. That's awesome. 
So if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because I am starting a business. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about it, but try with good. Yeah. I mean, it'll be an online network, but also dedicated to an area that I think is still underserved in the space. I want like, I want young people to look at science and technology and innovation in a cool way. And, you know, so that's, that's what I'm hoping to achieve with that, but also making and experimenting with VR content alongside scientists and researchers. Because I think what's happening in the VR space that's really, really interesting is when you start to look at the impacts of this content on the human brain. It's the first time ever we've seen uh, content this immersive where we are actually not evolved to understand that this stuff is not real. So we know it's not real, but our brain processes it differently than it would a YouTube video or a movie. It's no longer like a 3D movie gimmick when you put on an HTC Vive and you're painting in three-dimensional space. So me, I have an anthropology background. I studied psychopharmacology in college. So I found that like this new medium is the perfect intersection of my passions and figuring out how to make content that actually will benefit people psychologically in a positive way. That's like, that's my two-year goal. I love that anthropology major turned YouTube star. Like that's first to first. It doesn't make any sense. I'm almost certain of that. (laughs) Uh, Where can people find out more about you? YouTube.com slash Taryn. Just subscribe. That'll continue to be the hub of all things me and all things Tribe of Good. Um, If if anyone's interested in learning more about what I'm doing with Tribe of Good, they can sign up tribeofgood.com to be part of the newsletter. We have a volunteer program where we're taking uh, VR headsets into senior homes, hospitals, uh, veterans clinics and just giving a fun afternoon of immersive entertainment to people who cool. can really benefit from it. So awesome. yeah. amazing. And what's your Snapchat? Taryn Southern. There we go. So what should today be guys? Cause I haven't, I have, I normally snap every morning and I do a theme. I was thinking like maybe basic Thursdays mm. or no, like sometimes I try to do a little uh, wordplay. Yesterday was my campaign to win woman crush Wednesdays. Mm, so nice. just vote, vote WCW. There we go. Okay. Um, Tuesday was Tuesday truths, hard truths. Mm-hmm. I said Monday was attacking Monday. I like it. I think Monday today you should do, should do a collaboration it? with Luke's Instagram model channel. <laughs> model channel? Yeah. Do you actually have one I called have, model have, channel? No, I have like <laughs> seven followers on Instagram. It would that be the worst collaboration so, of all time. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Darren, this was so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you for having you. me. Uh, it was great. Pleasure. Uh, it was great to, to make this happen. From one podcaster to another, it's so great to have you. <laughs> We're, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm really yeah. fired up to see what you're going to do with Trap of Good and be a listener, be a follower. And it sounds Aww. such a cool yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.